Chapter 40, Wednesday, January 1st through Tuesday, January 7th, 1777. It is with much concern that I am to inform your lordship the unfortunate and untimely defeat at Trenton has thrown us further back. Then was at first apprehended from the first encouragement given to the rebels. British General William Howe, writing to Lord George Germain, Secretary of State for American Colonies after the American victory at Trenton. Just after the new year came, word of another shocking victory for the rebels, this one at Princeton in New Jersey. Washington's troops chased the British from, that, from the battlefield, killed a passel of them, and took a couple of hundred prisoners. Folks could scarce credit this, neither. Colonel Hawkins let out a roar in the study when the news was delivered and hit the unfortunate messenger on the head with a rolled-up map. Then he called for his horse and galloped off to the headquarters. Within a day, the British promised boiled peas and rice with butter twice a week for their American prisoners. But they still did not allow fires in the Bridewell cells. The men had to eat their meat raw. Their chamber pots froze solid at night. The master's trip to London was moved up so that he could deliver news of the setbacks to the Parliament and King. Madame had finally accommodated herself to the notion of his voyage and had found a way to turn it to her advantage. Whilst we prepared Loxton's clothes for the journey, she wrote out long lists of items she wanted him to buy in England. I kept to the kitchen and cellar and woodpile when she was awake, but made my trips up island each day before dawn, looking over my shoulder at every sound, choosing a different path daily. The constant worry had a hole in my belly. Curzon was stronger and told me not to fret, for he was not coughing up blood and his bowels were in fine working order. But he always asked me to come back on the morrow. The day of the master's departure, I roused myself extra early on account of I feared Madame might do the same. I deposited stale rolls and burnt hunks of pork on the windowsill of Curzon's cell, then crossed the commons on my way to the pump. There were a few folk out on, this, on their own early morning errands, all bundled in cloaks, and blanket coats and shawls and scarves wrapped high. You there, a loud voice called out. Everyone stopped. You there, girl! Oh, no. A British soldier hurried toward me. I relaxed some when I saw his face. It was the mountain-sized guard who had let me visit Curzon's cell when he was first imprisoned, the one who liked to eat. Haven't seen you around, he said as he neared me. I bobbed quickly. The rules don't allow civilians in the cells. He lowered his rifle to the ground and eyed my bucket. True enough. What you bring him today? Bread crusts and burnt meat, sir. He wrinkled his nose. What about yesterday? Yesterday was kidney pie and stale almond cake, sir. He shook his head and licked his lips. Sorry I missed that, I am. Wouldn't hurt to drop off a bite now and then to one such as myself, would it? No, sir, I answered. I shall remember that. He tilted his head to the side. Your master ever hire you out? It was common in those days for folks to hire out their slaves to make money. The slaves did not see the money, of course. But if I had the chance to work away from the prying eyes of madam, I'd be grateful for it. Yes, sir, I lied. Well, we need a maid to clean out the cells. Dying men do puke out some terrible things they do. You're a steadfast girl. 
tell your mistress we pay her the going rate for your services. I shall tell her, sir. He shouldered his rifle. I'm on the night watch now. The name is Fisher. Bring me round some cake, and I'll keep an eye on your brother. Thank you, Mr. Fisher. Sir, I shall. No kidney pie, though. Kidneys sour my guts. Something terrible. The master left for London with much muttering on the part of his wife. She did not take to her bed as I expected, but was driven round to the home of Mrs. Taylor to play cards and no doubt complain about her husband. While she was gone, Sarah birthed their baby boy in the cellar. I was sore tempted to sneak down the stairs and watch. I'd seen kittens and calves come into the world, but not babies. I had a powerful curiosity about it, but I dared not. I kept water boiling for the midwife and stuck cloth in my ears to keep out the noise. When Sarah stopped hollering, I crept down the stairs to see the babe. He was a round-headed fat fellow with big eyes and bigger ears. George, Sarah called him. You named him after the king? Hannah asked. Perhaps, Sarah said cheerfully. We never figured the colonists would hold on this long. My man was saying the other night that maybe the king would stop the war. Maybe the babe and us might stay here and not sail home. Plenty of room here, he said. She kissed the baby's nose. A name like George is a good one on either side of the ocean. Shh, warned Mary. The next day, Sarah and her George moved to a house set aside for new mothers attached to the army. I was sad to see them go, for I had wanted to hold the little one and make him laugh. Lady Seymour wanted to hear all of the details about the new baby. I thought maybe I could visit Sarah and ask her to bring the little lad by. Something about a baby always brings old folks back to life. When I mentioned this notion to the lady, she just shook her head. Not until this pestilence has left my lungs. She coughed into a stained handkerchief. <coughs> Heaven knows when that will be. Her health was changeable and flighty. One day, she'd feel strong and lively, and she'd eat three meals and drink a gallon of tea. The next, she'd lie abed with fever, looking so poorly it tempted Madame to order the coffin made. I went to place another log on the fire. Lady Seymour was lying propped up on pillows in her bed. She shook her head. No more wood. I'm warm enough. Please sit down, Isabel. Ma'am? I would like you to sit down, either in the chair or on the edge of the bed. I should like to talk to you. It was improper for a servant to sit with a lady as though they were companions, but she asked me direct. So I sat myself in the chair that was close to the fire. I could not figure what we needed to conversate on. She hadn't sent me a newspaper or sweets for days and days. Had I displeased her? Thank you. She sat back and used her right hand to place her left hand in her lap. I will soon meet my maker, Isabel. I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. I relaxed. T'was the pull of death that made old people go funny. Miss Mary Finch went the same way toward the end. Clouds would roll into her eyes, and she would talk nonsense for hours. Me and Ruth just sat polite and listened. The trick with adult old folk was to be agreeable. 
We all seek forgiveness, Lady Seymour. I wanted to buy you, she said. I wasn't sure I heard that right. Beg pardon, man? I tried to buy you from Anne after I first met you. She refused, and we argued like a pair of fishwives. I rather lost my temper. She chuckled. <laughs> Hadn't done that for thirsty years. I knew not what to say. She studied her useless hand. When Elihu returned from exile, I should have demanded you be placed in my household. I was horrified by your treatment, and of course your poor sister. But then the fire, her gaze returned to the hearth. I regret I did not force the matter. You would have suited my household. It would have eased her mind if I thanked her for wanting to buy me away from Madam. I tried to be grateful, but could not. A body, a body does not like being bought and sold like a basket of eggs, even if the person who cracks the shells is kind. Isabel? She waited some word from me. I did not know how to explain myself. It was like talking to her maid, Angelica, who was so much like me and at the same time so much different. We two had no string of words that could tie us together. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for telling me this. That was all I could muster. Forgive me, she said. I am a clumsy old woman. There was a shout from the drawing room upstairs where Colonel Hawkins and his men had been meeting. I stood. The soldier wives are all visiting Sarah. I should... Go on, she said, close, closing her eyes. Colonel Hawkins was in a right foul mood on account of all the forms he had to fill out, reports that were late. But war seemed fought with as much paper as bullets, what with the letters and the passes and permissions piled on the table, orders received and recorded, recordings and conferences noted down. When I entered, entered, he hollered that the room was colder than a barn and called me all manner of rude names. I chose the wood for his fire very carefully, the greenest, dampest logs in the entire wood pile, guaranteed to smolder and sputter without giving off any heat and even less light. After a frigid hour, he left for headquarters. It took all my might not to crack a smile. The grandfather clock ticked off the minutes. Madame would not return home for a goodly while. She was a terrible card player, but she had loads of money to lose so her companions would keep her at the faro table as long as possible. I peeked in Lady Seymour's door. She was wrapped up in her coverlet and sleeping. The blankets barely moved when she took breath. I pulled out common sense from its hiding place and read by firelight. In truth, there were some pages that I jumped over for I found it hard to figure their meaning. But I gathered many of, their, of his thoughts. Americans had good cause to overthrow their British masters. A person born to wealth was not born to rule over others, and t'was good and proper to fight injustice. I kept the mending basket close in hand, in case I needed to hide my crime. <laughs>